0: Sometimes it's helpful for a pastor to... uh... Welcome people really into his heart and what goes on in his mind and what makes him tick. Would you be interested in hearing a little bit of that? Um, One of the things that I do, and I I stole it from one of my heroes, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, is that as I make my way up to the pulpit, we have one, two, like three or four steps. I do as Spurgeon did and say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It was a little bit. different for Spurgeon because he made his way up a massive set of stairs as the pulpit is elevated above the people of God, and there's a reason for that. It's not just an aesthetic thing. The reason is because the Word of God is above the people of God, and I like that a great deal. And as I was uh, praying that short prayer, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, which is really the essence of where we're going this morning, the thought occurred to me that on a day that when we are, are mourning and grieving with our friends the Holtrops, uh, today is a day when more than ever we need the Holy Spirit to, to comfort us, uh, to strengthen us, and to apply the eternal Word of God to our hearts, so that we would leave uh, a changed people this morning, so that we would leave a transformed people. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to uh, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. The title of the message this morning is, Our New Life in the City of God, Compelled to Live for God's Glory. And we will narrow the focus of our study to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And as you make your way there, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. May I remind you that this is the infallible, authoritative, inerrant word of God. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Father, today we are mindful of the fact that uh, we need you. We need uh, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our substitute. He is our, our defense attorney. The one who stands in our defense and argues the case for us. We today need your Holy Spirit to comfort us, to console us, to uh, convict us of sin. God, I pray that you would do a great work today, that you would do a a mighty work uh, here in the midst of this sanctuary, uh, that you would greatly help this your people. And Father, for those who are not yet followers of Jesus, that something would happen deep down in someone's heart, that they would be quickened, that they would be convicted, that they would be challenged, that they would be moved in a mighty way to, to do an about-face to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would turn from their sin and they would turn to Jesus God, there's nothing that I can say to persuade anyone. It is only the the power of God. It is only the power of the Spirit that does such a mighty work. And so we are totally dependent on you, O Holy Spirit, to do this work. We come in faith. We come in humility. We come in contrition. As Isaiah 66 says, we come trembling before your word. And so would you be glorified on this day as we come together as your people? Once again, would you do this great and mighty work in so many hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For several weeks now, we have been moving very, very slowly, have we not? Through the book of Ephesians, most specifically, we have been moving through the very last section of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25, all the way through verse 32. And as we look at verses 25 to 32, Paul offers a series of imperatives. These are commandments for the believers in the the church at Ephesus. And he shows these believers in this first century church what their new life should look like as they reside in what I've been calling the city of God. You remember, that they have been taken out of the city of man. They have a, a new residence now. They no longer belong to the city of man. They live in the city of God. And here's what we have learned thus far. We have learned that this new life that these believers now enjoy, not only the believers in Ephesus, but every believer today who is seated in these pews, we've learned that this new life is totally countercultural. Have you figured that one out yet? If you decide to live as a follower of Jesus Christ, people are going to do a double take from time to time. They're going to wonder, what in the world is wrong with her? What in the world is wrong with him? We live countercultural lives as Christians. We have also discovered that this new life in the city of God is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive, and then we have learned that this new life that we live in the city of God is totally distinct. This is a, a, a totally different way of living, and the Apostle Peter really understood in a, in a vivid way, and he writes about it in the book of First Peter chapter 2, he understood w- what it meant to live this kind of life. Look what it says. He says, "...but you are a chosen race." a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Thus far, we have seen, in a general way, we have seen four directives. And I've put this on the screen as directives, but that's a very subtle way of saying we have looked at four directives commands we have looked at four imperatives and here is what we have learned thus far in ephesians 4:25 we have learned the importance of the christ followers who are living in the city of god that's you and me if we're christians that we are to be committed to the truth can we put a period at the end of that sentence we are committed to the truth not comma Not if we feel like it. Not on the days like we feel like living for the Lord. But we are called to be committed to the truth. Verses 26 and 27. We have learned the importance of having controlled emotions. Men, we are to have controlled emotions. We don't fly off the handle at our wives. We don't chastise our children. We don't get bent out of shape when things don't go our ways. Men and women and boys and girls who are followers of Jesus are called to have controlled emotions. Verse 28, we learn the importance of conscientious hands. And this was really a message where we focused on what what I would like to call the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant work ethic. We are called to work hard, to labor with our hands. To work hard for the glory of God. Verse 29. Last week we learned the importance of clean lips. That we are to be a people that have pure tongues. That our mouths are used for the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we come to the home stretch in Ephesians chapter 4. We get closer and closer to the end of this chapter. And we move forward to verse 30 through verse 32, and we find that there is one more directive. There is one more imperative. And we're going to take two weeks to finish this, this final directive. And the final directive is this, is that we are compelled to live to the glory of God. And so I ask this question, the question is posed, how do we do this? How do we who live in this postmodern culture, this culture who says there is no such thing as absolute truth, this culture who says just do whatever you please, if you get mad, just get mad. I have heard people say if you get mad at God, go out into a field and shake your fist at Him and yell at Him. Just be transparent. He knows what's in your heart anyway. That is the dumbest advice I think I have ever heard. We are never, never to come across that way to the living God. We are to have controlled emotions. We are to have conscientious hands and clean lips. And so how do we do this? How do we live in the city of God for the glory of God? I think we find some compelling help in verse 30. And there's three things I want you to see today as we, as we frame up an answer to this question How do we live for God's glory in the city of God? And the first answer is this. And I want to begin very basically. The first answer is that we must recognize who the Holy Spirit is. I remember when we served at First Baptist Church in Le Grand, I did a, a, a class that was entitled The Holy Spirit. And it was a a 12-week class where we just learned all we could about the third member of the Trinity. And I remember I got a knock on the door. I might have shared this with a few of you before. And I got a knock on the door, and the door opened, and there was a man I had never seen before. He was probably about 10 years younger than me. And he introduced himself, and he says, I have a question for you. And he didn't have a happy look on his face. And I thought, you know, from time to time you run into this kind of thing. I thought, here we go. And he said, what's going on around here? I was like, "Um, what do you mean? And he said, I go to the charismatic church down the road. I used to go to this church, but now I go to the charismatic church. And I have heard, and please tell me if this is correct. I have heard that your church is teaching... About the Holy Spirit. I said, that would be correct. Guilty as charged. And then the frown on his face turned into a massive grin. And he said, oh, I am so encouraged. I am so encouraged that you are teaching about the Holy Spirit. And for me, it's just like, wow, I believe in the Holy Spirit. How can you not believe in the Holy Spirit? He said, well, I can tell you that uh, years and years ago when I went to this church... I went to this church in the days where the you never heard about the Holy Spirit. He may have been believed in, but we never heard about Him. And so it is vital that we recognize who the Holy Spirit is. And so, in a very basic way, I want to provide you with the big picture. For many of you, this will be very basic. This will be review. But wouldn't you agree that it's, it's good from time to time for a review? You remember what Vince Lombardi said to, said to uh, the Green Bay Packers at halftime? They were getting walloped. He stood before the men and he held up a football and he said, Gentlemen, this is a football. (laughs) That's pretty basic. This is a football. And so I want to do that just for a moment when we look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Three things in particular. Number one, the Holy Spirit, as I've already said, is the third member of the Trinity. Many of you have heard the definition that I am fond of using by James White, who says this, Within the one being that is God... There exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we begin by understanding that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. Number two, please remember that the Holy Spirit is God. God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. In fact, in the book of Matthew, you don't need to turn there, you know this very well, we see that the Holy Spirit stands alongside the Father and the Son. This is what Jesus says to His disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the, help me, Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit stands alongside the Father and the Son. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. These are just two uh, very important examples. 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, Paul means God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so the Holy Spirit stands alongside the Father as well as the Son. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, God and the Holy Spirit, that is, God and the Holy Spirit, or the Father, are used simultaneously. Paul says, do you not know that God's temple, that is, God the Father, and that God's Spirit dwells within you? Additionally, the Holy Spirit possesses which of the attributes of God? Every attribute of God. I heard someone say it. All of them. The Holy Spirit possesses every attribute of God. He is said to possess the attribute of omniscience. He knows everything. He has comprehensive knowledge of everything in the past, everything in the present, and everything in the future. The Holy Spirit has the attribute of omnipotence. He is all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is in Everson. He is in Belarus. He is in Tallahassee. He is in New York City. He's even in Canada. (laughs) I'm kidding. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. He is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit possesses the attributes of wisdom, understanding, power, and knowledge. He is eternal. He possesses the attribute of truth. He possesses the attribute of love. You understand, the list goes on and on. The Holy Spirit is called God. Now, in a moment, we're going to look at a very interesting story in Acts chapter 5. This is a story that scared the first century believers half to death. And it goes like this. Peter said to Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Listen, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man. You have lied to God. When they lied to the Holy Spirit, they were lying to God. And so the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. And number three, the Holy Spirit, and this is one that we need to think carefully about the Holy Spirit is a person, the Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an intangible object. The Holy Spirit is a person uh, this weekend. Draine and I have the the pleasure of having our good friends who are seated in the front row here, Doug and Sue Hopper with us from legrand and that 's kind of my little advertisement to come and get to know them afterwards. I know many of you would do that unprompted because we are the friendly church, right? But we were just last night over a, a rousing game of cards. And two, demolished us all. I was asking, hey, is a certain, I I named the restaurant, is a certain restaurant still in operation? And so we were talking about that restaurant. It was my favorite restaurant when we lived in La Grande. And I remember one day I, I walked into this restaurant. Chris, you've been there. I recommended it. And Chris loved it. Kirk and Kyle, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, the pizza place. Yeah. (laughs) The title, uh, Richie, is in it. Okay, you're with me. So I walked into this restaurant, and this was the book I was reading, one of my favorite Puritan writers, John Owen. And uh, I was just so excited to grab a piece of pizza at my favorite restaurant, and I I walked into this establishment, and I went to order my pizza, and I laid my, my book, The Holy Spirit is the title, all right there on the table, and I got my credit card out, and one of the employees looked down at the book and he said, and I quote, I've got one of those It's like I cracked. And I said, The Holy Spirit is not a one of those. Do you understand? The Holy Spirit's not an inanimate object. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a what? Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit, God's word says, communicates. You know, an, an, an inanimate object can't communicate anything, right? You pick up a rock and you say, How's it going, Mr. Rock? And what do you get? You get nothing, right? The Holy Spirit communicates. Uh, John chapter 15. When the the helper comes, that is the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, when the helper comes, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit communicates. The Holy Spirit, additionally, prays. Here's what Paul says in the book of Romans. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we Ought to pray for, but the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Additionally, the Holy Spirit guides the people of God. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, Jesus says, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things are to come. This morning, we are experiencing something of the Holy Spirit's ministry when the Holy Spirit teaches us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. We have seen in Acts chapter 5 that the Holy Spirit, who is a person, may be lied to. Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. And then we see, if you would look once again at Ephesians 4.30, we see the importance of the personhood of the Holy Spirit when we see in verse 30 that the Holy Spirit may be grieved. And so if we are to live a life to the glory and honor of God and the city of God, we must begin in this verse by recognizing who the Holy Spirit is. There's a second thing I want you to see. And I should warn you that this sermon is backloaded. It's like the intense stuff, the most intense stuff's at the end. So, you know when you're in a class and you know, oh boy, it's almost, it's like 1045, it's time to start wrapping up. Don't wrap up yet. Because it's coming. It's coming. Number two, remember. Remember what the Holy Spirit has accomplished. Remember what the Holy Spirit has accomplished. And we, we only have time to look at one specific thing. And the reason for that is really not because of time. It's because of what we find in verse 30. And I like to refer to this as a beautiful promise. And the beautiful promise is this. Verse 30 tells us that the elect of God... That is, Christ followers, the elect of God, have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, the the word translated sealed means this. It means that if you are a Christian, you have been marked by God. Some of you have seen, believe it or not, it's one of my favorite possessions. It's my book stamp, right? I love that thing. My brother gave it to me about 10 or 12 years ago. When I get a book, I put the book stamp in that book. It says, From the Library of Dr. David S. Steele. Pause off. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But it says... This belongs to me. And it's embossed. It's the cruelest thing. I remember the first time I did it, I thought, wow, it's a miracle. <laughs> Who needs electronics when you have an embosser, right? When you became a Christian, you got embossed. And guess what? It says that Tanya belongs to God. Jason belongs to God, Right? We have been sealed. We have been designated specifically by God. Now, we read earlier in First Peter chapter 2, I hope you remember it and recognize this, that we are referred to as God's possession. Have you ever heard a, a woman in postmodern culture say, you can already hear it coming, right? I'll do with my body what I choose to do with my body. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not your body. It does not belong to you. You are God's possession. You are additionally secure because you are God's possession. You are secure because of this ceiling. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, For while we are still in this tent, That's the tent. While we are still in this tent, we groan. Have you ever experienced that? The last couple of days, here's what I've been thinking. It's been rolling through my mind, and I think all of you will agree with me. And I actually, during the song service, Jason, I wrote this in my notes. See that at the top? He's like, I can't read your writing. I hate the curse. Anyone else hate the curse? I hate it. I hate the curse. I hate it. And that's what Paul says here. While we are still in this tent, we groan, we're being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but we would be further clothed so that what is moral may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Why? We have been sealed by the Spirit. It is a guarantee. If you're here this morning and you've been raised in a tradition where you were taught you could lose your salvation, (laughs) you need to turn your attention to the great embosser. You belong to God. There is no circumstance. There is no person. There is no demon in hell who could snatch you away from the Father's hands. You are eternally secure. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. Better yet, we believe in the preservation of the saints. Now, I want you to to look really at the, the context in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at the context of the sealing. We see that the elect of God has, have been sealed, Paul says, until the day of redemption. Realize that the, the day of the Lord is coming. There is coming a day when Scripture tells us that Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge every unrepentant person, and every unrepentant person will endure the full fury of the wrath of God. You see, I don't know if I like the concept of the wrath of God. Guess what? On the day of the Lord, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, will unleash... 10,000 degrees of white-hot fury and wrath on every person who has refused to bend the knee to Jesus. But here's the good news. Something else will happen on that day. On that day, God will reward the people of God. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself this is the the beautiful promise that we have been sealed by the holy spirit and one day we will receive a new glorified body And so as we remember this morning what the Holy Spirit has has sovereignly accomplished, I want to challenge you to, to live in light of this beautiful promise. I want you to live with new perspective because of this beautiful promise. To live with holy expectation because of the reality of this beautiful promise. How do we live for the glory of God and the city of God? We recognize who the Holy Spirit is, number one. We remember what the Holy Spirit accomplished. That's number two, and here's where the backloading begins. There's a third thing I want you to see, and it emerges clearly in verse 30, is we must respond obediently to the Holy Spirit. We read it once again with me, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I like to refer to this as a, a serious command. This is a sober command. It's so vitally important. That word grieve comes from a a word that means to cause sorrow or grief. It means to inflict pain. And Paul says in our vernacular, don't do that. Don't grieve the third member of the Godhead who is a person Now, if you would hold your finger in Ephesians 4, I I want to direct you to two passages to show you where the word grieve is used. Because I don't think, even just, I anticipated this, but looking out, I don't know if if it's fully sunk in yet, the, the weightiness and the gravity of this word. So, hold your finger in Ephesians 4 and go to John chapter 21. And my suspicion is, as we look at these few verses, that, or one verse actually, that, that it will sink in. In John chapter 21, verse 17, this is the scene when the Lord Jesus Christ confronts the Apostle Peter. You remember Peter. He was the Apostle who uh, ha- had a propensity to put his, his sandal in his mouth. He was the apostle who denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. And Jesus says in verse 17, he said a third time, right? He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Husbands, when you look at your wife and say, Do you love me? What does that do to the heart of your wife? And vice versa. Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me? And Peter, in essence, thought i i can't believe you would even ask notice the word that is used peter was grieved that's the same word that is translated in ephesians 4 verse 30 peter was grieved because jesus said to him the third time do you love me and he said to him lord you know everything at least his theology was good right you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You see that Peter was grieved. He was cut to the, to the very quick emotionally because of the question that Jesus posed to him. Also look over at First Peter chapter 1. In First Peter chapter 1, one of my favorite sections of, of Scripture, and look with me at verses 3 to 6. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 6 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been Grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. The word grieved used in First Peter chapter 1 verse 7 is the same word translated grieved when Paul says, stop doing that. He tells the Ephesian believers, and he tells every believer this morning, stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, the Apostle Paul sets this very serious commandment before the Christians in Ephesus, but he also sets an important commandment before every one of us. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Here's what surfaced in my mind. The fact that he tells the Ephesian believers, stop doing that tells me this, they were doing that. That they were struggling with this sin. They were no doubt struggling to carry out the important message of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. Look at it quickly. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. They were struggling with that. They were battling with that. And so Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, stop grieving the Spirit. I like to think of it like this they were struggling with with turning back to the city of man, they kept wandering back into the city of man. Now, I think the $64,000 question is this How is it that we can grieve the Holy Spirit? How did you and I as believers grieve the Holy Spirit? And I I want to linger here for a few minutes because I I think it's vitally important. There are several ways that, that we can grieve the Spirit. And the first one is this, is that whenever you rebuff the voice of the Spirit, that grieves Him. Whenever you rebuff the voice of the Spirit, that grieves Him. Please remember, the Holy Spirit speaks to the people of God through the agency of the Word of God. That's how the Holy Spirit ministers to you and I. And so, neglecting the Word of God, I think you're going to follow this. When we neglect the Word of God, that grieves the Spirit. When we marginalize the Word of God, that grieves the Spirit. When we tamper with the Word of God, that grieves the Spirit. When we add to the Word of God, that grieves the Spirit. When you subtract from the Word of God, that grieves the Spirit. Compromising the Word of God, you're getting it. That grieves the spirit. Disobeying the word of God grieves the spirit. Now I thought of a, a, a crass illustration that I have to share with you. This, it's probably not the greatest illustration, but I think it communicates. Have you ever gone to McDonald's and you, you step up to the cashier? And I'm going to just share something with you that's happened probably 30 times in my lifetime. It goes something like this. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? What can I get for you, sir? I'd like a a double cheeseburger with bacon. Now, you have to pay close attention. I'd like a double cheeseburger with bacon, a large fry, and a small shake to go. Okay. Would you like bacon on that burger? It's like, my word. And I'm, I'm thinking, Grace, Grace. Yes, i like bacon on that burger. Okay. Would you like any fries with that? Yes, I'd, I'd really like some fries. And is that for here to go? you serious? This person's not even listening. They're not even listening. I mean, it's the kind of person where you walk up and they say, how are you doing today? And you say, actually, I'm thinking of taking my life. That's wonderful. You're not even listening! And we do the same thing with the Holy Spirit. We, we rebuff His voice, and that grieves the Holy Spirit. When we snub Him, that grieves the Holy Spirit. When we brush Him off or discount Him or give Him the cold shoulder, that grieves the Holy Spirit. There's a second way we grieve the Spirit. When we reject the convicting ministry or the promptings of the Holy Spirit... That grieves him. Have you ever been there? Even something popped in your mind, you thought, I, I should do that. And he's like, no, not today. I learned years and years ago, and it took me a while to figure this out, I would think, I should write that person. And I learned, and I, I'm not even making a claim to where it's coming from. But if, if the Holy Spirit wants me to do something, it's time to obey. I shared with Doug and, and Sue last night that a man popped into my head Several months ago, and I thought I should call him. And I was just out of the blue. I called, Don, how you doing? Right? But 10 days later, later, he was with Jesus. And I'm so glad I called him. I'm so glad I called him. We need to listen carefully to the ministry of the Spirit, to the convicting ministry, to his promptings. When you ignore the ministry of the Spirit, he is grieved. When the Spirit convicts you of an attitude or a behavior and you set his convicting word aside and say, Oh, I'll do that when I'm older. That's a classic one for young people. You know the Holy Spirit's convicting you to stop doing something or to start doing something. I've talked to tons of young people and they essentially deny the ministry of the Spirit when they come to me and say, Yeah, when I'm 40, I'll think about that. But not now. I'm going to have fun. that that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. When the Spirit prompts you to complete a task or engage in some kind of activity to the glory of God, and you ignore Him, that grieves the Holy Spirit. There's a third way we grieve Him. When we repudiate the counsel of the Spirit, that too grieves the Spirit of God. Please understand, once again, and I can't emphasize this enough, and... Doug and Sue, you'll remember this because Wayne taught this to me. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the people of God, period. Does he ever do it any other way? The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the people of God. When the psalmist tells us this is how to live and we repudiate that, that grieves the Holy Spirit of God, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Ah, maybe down the road. That grieves the third member of the Godhead. There's a fourth way that we grieve the Spirit. And we'll conclude with this. When we refuse to take responsibility for our sin, we grieve the Spirit of God. And I, I, can, I can almost feel it. There's this, uh-oh, here it comes. When we refuse to take responsibility for our sin, we we grieve the Holy Spirit. What's that look like? This is not in your notes, and you might have to get an extra piece of paper if you want to jot these things down. But These are the ways that we refuse to take responsibility for our sin. And we learn this from our first parents. It's in Genesis. We refuse to take responsibility for our sin when we hide our sin. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll see this take place in a... A very, very vivid way. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Obviously, the context is God tells Adam and Eve they can eat from any of the tree except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as Paul Harvey says, you know the rest of the story. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. I remember reading that story Probably hundreds of times as a as a kid, does it strike you how foolish that, foolishness that is that that the triune God is omnipresent like <laughs> do you think God can see him hide him behind the guitar in the in the garden? They hide themselves they, they hid their sin. Ananias and Sapphira did the same thing. They grieved the Holy Spirit of God when they they lied about their sin. Verse 4 in Acts chapter 5 says that the sin of deception originated right here in their hearts. So when we hide our sin, and this happens all the time, all around the world. You're on your computer, men. And you're looking at a website that you ought not to look at. I won't get into more detail. And you hear the steps. Minimize. Delete. Clear your history. Your wife says, honey, are you looking at porn? I don't do that anymore. No, you just hide your sin. And that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. There's another way that we refuse to take responsibility for our sin. We, we hurl our sin. And you're very familiar with this. And look back at Genesis chapter 3. We also learn this from our first parents. Genesis chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. God says to Adam, God says to Adam, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And this is classic. Classic. We call it passing the buck. The man says, it was the chick. Right? Do you see that? Is that what it says in your translation? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. What's he saying? It's her fault. What's he doing? He's hurling his sin. But notice what else happens. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman says, It was the snake. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you know that I can think of a handful of times in pastoral ministry, this will cause drain to just like go under the pew because it. it it's not only frustrating, it's also, also very hurtful, and it also is, it will, will make a pastor and his wife extremely irate. I can tell you a handful of times when I have had to admonish, and by the way, y'all, I, it's not, I don't enjoy doing it. I don't like confrontation. But there comes a time when you have to admonish as, a, as an elder. And I can tell you a handful of times I have had to admonish serious sin. Let's call it sexual sin. And here's the response I got. It's going to blow you away. Pastor, if you would have held me more accountable, I wouldn't have done that. Say that once again. If you would have held me more accountable, I wouldn't have done that. Where did that comment come from? It came from Adam and it came from Eve. That's what we call hurling our sin when we hurl our sin the holy spirit is grieved there's another way that we don't take ownership of our sin and this is a very practical one when we minimize our sin when we minimize our sin it goes like this yeah i'm really struggling with that mistake i made uh, it, it was an error it was a it was a peccadillo you can even use latin to minimize your sin it was a it was a minor lapse of judgment it was sin, right? It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an error. It wasn't a, an, an affair. You know what I think of when I hear affair? going to have an affair. It's adultery. It, we, we, we're together. So we deal with sin. We don't minimize it. We confess it. One writer says, Sin must be understood from a God-centered standpoint. At its core, sin is a violation of the creator-creature relationship. Man only exists because God made him, and man is in every sense obligated to serve his creator. Sin causes man to assume the role of God. you catch that? Sin causes man to assume the role of God and to assert autonomy for himself apart from the creator. The most all-encompassing view of sin's mainspring, therefore, is the demand for autonomy. That is to say, the essence of sin is, I want to be in control, I want to call the shots, and if I may be so bold and crass, I want to be God. Daniel Fuller observes, We should understand our total depravity primarily to consist in heaping the greatest insult upon God by refusing to regard him as trustworthy. Why is sin such an evil thing? Why is depravity so wicked? The act in and of itself, we would say, is bad. But the reason we commit the sin is we fail to trust the living god and we refuse to regard god as trustworthy we heap a great insult on the greatness of his worth this sin grieves the holy spirit but the the beauty of this message and we conclude here is that this sin was dealt with on the cross of the lord jesus christ so how do we live for the glory of god We recognize who the Holy Spirit is. We remember the work of the Holy Spirit and what He accomplished. And we respond obediently to the Holy Spirit. I want to give you and I want to have you just do me a favor. Sometimes pastors change things or revise things. There's a a concluding application section in your notes. Just put a big cross through it. Cross it out because I redid it. It's a last minute edit. And so I want to give you five points of quick application. Ways that you can move forward to live the glory of God. And the first is this. is I want to encourage you to cultivate a holy fear of God. And what struck me as I, as I walk through this verse, verse 30, is that the greatest motivation for not grieving God is God. Does that make sense? The greatest motivation for not grieving God is God. When you think of who the triune God is, the majesty and the beauty and the sovereignty and the greatness of God, and Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, don't grieve the Spirit. If you're like me, I need some motivation the motivation we can have is God. When you recognize who the Holy Spirit is and cultivate a holy fear of the living God, you are driven to please Him in everything you do. Secondly, I want to encourage you to delight in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God tells us that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, as we heard earlier. He intercedes for the people of God. He guides the people of God in the, in the path of truth. He teaches and applies the Word of God to His people. The Spirit transforms the people of God into the image of Christ. And my encouragement to you is this, that you would delight in that ministry. Number three, train yourself. Train yourself to be sensitive to sin. Here is what the world tells us. I'm, sh- I'm sure you have heard this. My friends have told me this in days past. You need to loosen up. Has anyone ever said that to you? Loosen up. Can I can I give you just a great response to that? And say it humbly. Don't say it arrogantly. You say, no, I'm going to tighten up. The young people. You need to loosen up. No, I, today I'm going to tighten up. You need to just kind of not be so serious about the things of the Lord. No, actually, I've decided I'm going to be very serious about the things of the Lord. We need to learn to recognize sin and respond appropriately to sin. We need to learn, like Joseph, to flee from sin. Paul says, flee from youthful lusts. It was John MacArthur that said the command to not show ingratitude to the Divine Spirit is based on the fact that He has secured our salvation. Paul is not saying we should avoid sin in order to keep our salvation, but rather that we should be eternally grateful to the Holy Spirit for making it impossible for us to lose it, close quote. That leads to the fourth point of application, and that is to foster the daily habit of gratitude. Would you raise your hand if you're still doing it? On January 1st, I encourage you to write something you're thankful for every day. Please, at least one person raise your hand. There's more than one. Okay, and if you started and stopped... Leonia, what is it, what, Leona, what will I say right now if you've started and stopped? Because we're doing this together. If you started and stopped, you're like, ah, Pastor, I just kind of... What would you suggest they do, Leona? Just begin again. If you haven't started today, write something down you're thankful for. And I'll tell you what I wrote down this morning in my journal. I am thankful for the friendship we have with the hoppers. It's easy. And so as you cultivate this attitude of gratitude, I believe that something miraculous happens in your Christian life. It was the the great Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said that it is base in gratitude not to realize the Holy Spirit and not always to do everything that is well-pleasing in His sight. Now, Linda, you might be able to help me with this. Now, he's a Welshman. Linda's from London. But, here's what he said. To grieve him is to be a cad. I'd never heard that word. I think it's some kind of crazy Welsh word, so I looked it up. To be a cad is a person who behaves dishonorably. It is an unpleasant and despicable person. So Lloyd Jones says to have base ingratitude towards the Holy Spirit, to grieve him is to be a cad, is to be guilty of base ingratitude for all that he has done for us. Number five. I want to encourage you to flee to the cross when you sin. I want to encourage you to flee to the cross when you sin. You and I need to keep short accounts with God. And when you sin, this might surprise you, when you sin and you will, you remember what John said in 1 John, anyone who said he doesn't sin, he is a a liar and the truth is not in him. And so we have to be real, right? When you sin and you will, here's what we all do. We head that way. We head to the cross. And we, when we flee to the cross, we remember that the promise in the word of God is if we confess our sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. One writer says, remember him. Remember what he is doing in you. Think of the glory for which he is preparing you and the things that grieve him will become unthinkable. When you cultivate the fear of God, when you delight in the ministry of the spirit, when you train yourself to be sensitive to sin, when you foster the daily habit of gratitude, when you make it a habit to to flee to the cross when you sin, you will find yourself on a path where you are living all to the glory of God. And Lord willing, we will complete Ephesians chapter 4 next week. And we will ask the question once again, how do we as the people of God live in the city of God all to the glory of God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ministry of your Spirit. It is an amazing thing to consider that the Holy Spirit has been with us He continues to be with us. He is teaching us. He is prompting us. He is encouraging us. He's convicting us. And and it's happening all over the room. There may be some people in the sanctuary who have been cut to the quick with conviction. And my prayer is that there have been many who have been encouraged deeply as they have waded into the deep waters of your word. And so I pray that you would wash us with it. That you would encourage us with it. That you would help us to, to live all to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would remember these principles that we have gleaned from in Ephesians 4 verse 30. And we look forward to coming back next week and, and completing this journey in Ephesians 4. And learning a bit more of what it means to live all to the glory of God and the city of God. We thank you for the work that you have done. And the work that you will continue to do in the hearts of Of these dear people, we give you the glory in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.